0: Pickaxe. And I want you to join me in this bliss. Get in my van and I'll drive you to a place that has endless happiness. Get in my van and we'll go to a place. <laughs> I can't do it a straight face. But you going to see how, how terrifying that is? It's like, I don't even need to mention the van. You know the van is coming. It's coming. Right? You know something like something is weird here introverted, and being seen as creepy. So I went on this date with this girl a couple months ago, and we went out to eat, and being introverted, I'm not a real big talker. After the date, she texted me and said she thought I was creepy because I didn't talk much. Yes, that is literally what she said and didn't want to go on on any more dates. Why do introverts get mislabeled as creepy just for not talking a lot? In honesty, it kind of bothered me. Any thoughts? So... One of the most challenging pieces of feedback to get, and we don't even think about it as feedback, is being called creepy, right? Because here's the thing, like if someone's, let's say you like this person, you go on a date and then they they tell you like, oh, like you're creepy. I don't think I want to go out anymore. Like, what do you do about that, right? How is that actionable in any way, shape or form? And not only is it like, how is it, how do you just like be less uh, creepy? You can't really do that. And so not only is it like not actionable, it's, it's really confusing as to why some people get labeled as creepy. Is it because we're introverted? Like, what does it mean to be creepy? Like, how do you even get labeled creepy? Like, what are the features of creepiness? And this is why it's so challenging is because like people will use this word a lot, right? Oftentimes in dating and relationships. But it's the kind of thing that is devastating. It's like a devastating label to receive and absolutely nothing you can do about it. Because even if you were to go and ask this person, I'm not sure that this person would want to have a you know, long conversation with you about it after one date. But even if you did have someone who, who let's say, would sit down and talk with you about you know, what creepy is, like what would they even say? If you ask someone, if you feel like someone else is creepy, like what would they say? Like how, if you ask them, okay, what is it that makes me creepy? It's going to be very hard for people to even tell you what it is. And so I thought in honor of Friday the 13th, what we would do today is actually talk a little bit about what it means to be creepy. And the interesting thing is that thankfully we have a very sophisticated language in, in, psyche, in psychiatry um, about different kinds of nonverbal sort of cues and other things that I think we can actually unpack what creepiness is. And the cool thing is as we unpack what creepiness actually is, then what we can do is also figure out some way to actually address each of those components. Okay? So the first thing to understand about being creepy is that it's kind of like a it's kind of like just a, a feeling that you get, right? So like someone, if you think about the times when you've been creeped out, even if we were to ask you, okay, what is it that makes this creepy? You may not really be able to say. So maybe there are some things that you you may be able to say, because your mind is gonna come up with answers. But we don't really know that those are the features of creepiness. So what we're going to first do is understand, OK, like, what are the features of creepiness? And if we can kind of break down what are the features of creepiness, then we'll get an avenue if you've been told that you're creepy before or you have a friend who's creepy and like doesn't really is it is having trouble socializing. Then, you know, like maybe you can give them some feedback that's a little bit more constructive, like we can help ourselves and potentially help other people. The other cool thing about it is that even if there are people that we feel are creepy, maybe we can give them some more formative feedback to try to make the world a better place. And so the first thing that we're gonna do is dive into like, okay, what does it mean to be creepy? Okay? So what I wanna point out to begin with is just that creepiness is kind of a, uh, creepiness is kind of a, it's a gut check, right? So we have in our minds or brains, Okay, I guess this is clipped off in the top. So maybe my face involves creepiness, which we'll get to for a second. We have in our minds or our brains all this kind of like signal processing stuff that is going on. And we're not really aware of what the signal processing is. But there are certainly things that we know, like uh, people who make movies, for example, we know that there are certain things that we can do to give the audience a sense that this person is creepy. So I think the, the Joker is a really good example of this because if you watch this movie, like, it's kind of creepy, right? The dude is creepy. But what aspects of it are creepy? Because some people, like, as we saw in our subreddit post, they sort of say, like, I'm an introvert, therefore I'm creepy. No, it's not like that. Introversion, if you really look at the the original definition that Carl Jung, I believe, came up with— it's not about being quiet or shy, that's not what introversion necessarily is. It's about whether you get drained or energized by interacting with other people. So after a long day of work, this is the way that I kind of think about introverts, like if if you're exhausted at 6 p.m. on a Friday and it's been a rough week, how do you spend the next 4 or 5 hours like relaxing, unwinding or having a good time? Do you go out and socialize or do you sit at home and kind of like spend time with yourself? So when you're like regenerating your mana bar, do you spend it with people or without people? And that's a good example. I think that's the best kind of uh, description of introversion versus extroversion. And a lot of this other stuff like shyness or like, you know, not being able to relate to people. And so that's all completely different. Okay. so now if we look at the Joker, the question sort of becomes, Okay, what are the features that are involved that make this creepy? And so the cool thing is that we've done research on this kind of thing. And what people have discovered is there's this thing called the uncanny valley. So if something like looks human-esque but doesn't look human enough, we kind of consider it creepy, right? So this is where the brain sort of decides that, okay, like this is not a human. Therefore, I'm not going to judge it in kind of a – I don't need to judge it at all. Like it's not human. There's nothing I need to be uh, afraid of. Oh, okay. Let me move my camera actually. Okay, so I will just be part of. (laughs) I'll be part of part of the slides, so Doctor K can be part of the Uncanny Valley. All right. So if we kind of look at this, um, actually, you know what would be better is probably if we just did this. How about we do this? (laughs) Okay, easier. So if we look at this concept of the Uncanny Valley, what we see is that there's this sort of like there's this ratio between familiarity and similarity. And there's kind of this interesting place where we're, we're like not too worried about things if they don't look human. And then if they look superhuman, we're not really worried about them either. Or like just a regular human. But then there's this, there's this sort of like lack of humanness that our brain assigns a creepiness value to. And the interesting thing is if you tunnel down into what are the features of the uncanny valley... What do we see in these things that like make us feel kind of disturbed? They're actually discrete features that will move us from here to here and trigger this sort of idea that things are creepy. So if you look at this, like what about this picture makes it creepy? What about this makes it creepy? Right? what do you all think? Right, it's disturbing. And so then there's also other things that as we kind of look into creepiness and stuff like that, what we'll kind of see is like, This is just kind of frightening, but there are certain features that get kind of changed a little bit and like, that's what makes it creepy. But the key thing here is that there are certain features here which actually like make it creepy. So let's kind of tunnel down into what is it that makes all of these things creepy, okay? So the first aspect of creepiness is, okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of different before we dive in. So let's just kind of recap what we've done so far. So sometimes you'll see something, right? I'll be walking down the street and I'll, I'll see something and then I'll think that is creepy. So what, what that, let's say I'm walking down the street and you see like someone who's homeless. And, and this is where like homeless people oftentimes evoke a creepiness or fear response from people walking down the street. And the question is like, why is that? Right? So even when I was in training, one of the, the key things that one of my uh, mentors or teachers once taught me is they, they were trying to tell me like, okay, if you're trying to figure out if someone is depressed or someone is psychotic, there's a very simple what they call the limbic test. So it's kind of like trusting your brain instincts about whether this person is depressed or whether they psychotic they're psychotic. And the test is if this person were sitting on the subway and there was one seat open on the subway, and the, the seat was right next to this person. Would you sit down next to them or not? And if you would sit down next to them, they're depressed. If you wouldn't sit down next to them, they're psychotic. And it's kind of like it's not precisely true. It's not you know a true scientifically validated test. But it's a really interesting perspective because there are some things that our brain is interpreting about other people. There's certain features which our brain is keeping track of which make us like, hesitate with some people and make us not hesitate with other people. So the other interesting thing is that we, we can lean on a couple of different areas of research. So one is attachment theory and some of those things in terms of child development. And then we can also look at uh, research in schizophrenia, because oftentimes, you know, if we're talking about psychotic disorders and, and oftentimes what makes people who are homeless like difficult, like frightens people kind of instinctually. There may be all kinds of different biases and things like that, which I, I'm not saying that those don't exist and this is entirely explanatory for it, but there's like something about some kinds of people that set us off. And the interesting thing is that we know through neuroscience analysis of people with schizophrenia, what some of that stuff is, because oftentimes when people are actively psychotic, they creep other people out, right? And like, you'll look at someone, you'll be like, that person is on something, that person is high, and you kind of like steer clear, you walk across the street. So these are experiences that we all have. And the cool thing is we can do research to sort of understand what's going on. Okay. So the first thing to understand about creepiness is what we call fixed affect, So fixed affect is, so affect is the display of emotion on your face. So when we think about it, like fluctuating affect in a normal kind of way, like a a certain amount of fluctuation in your facial expressions calms other people down. Okay. So like, I'll give you guys a simple example. We're going to do it real quick. Right. So if I go like this, right, this is great. Now, like, think about how do you feel if I'm doing something like that, right? If I just start smiling, I'm like, hey, how's everybody doing today? There's something about that that could be comforting or maybe you're smiling too. You're like, what is this guy doing, right? And then if I stop fluctuating it, I'm still smiling, right? And the second that my affect changes, now my affect has changed. Like, and so all it takes is fluctuation of affect. So as long as my facial expression is changing, and this is where even if you look at like, if you, if I don't know if you all have had experience with kids, but the most terrifying thing for a child is when you have a neutral facial expression that they can't get you to react. So if you like go to a child, don't do this to children, but just as it, to illustrate it. Like, go to a child, and you have a completely neutral affect. Like, it's not even about smiling. It's about the fact that the affect doesn't fluctuate, right? So I can just do this. And that's creepy. It's freaking creepy, right? You'll see that? So there's not a fluctuation of affect. And then if you do that with a kid, what the kid will do is they'll, like, try to get you to respond so first they'll make a noise they'll like start laughing they may like touch your face they'll do something cute they'll like show you something they're like going to try to get some kind of reaction and then like if that doesn't work they're going to start crying like anything to get you to react and so sometimes part of what we'll get to like why this is a problem for people but the first thing to understand about creepiness and we can even look at things like we can go back to our our you know uh kind of joker taking a quick look at the joker okay and what we what we find is that like this has a certain amount of like if y'all have seen the joker you know that he kind of like laughs inappropriately right so like he he just smiles for way too long and that's partially potentially why clowns are creepy but what we see is a non-fluctuating affect leads to people feeling creepy okay next thing to talk about Oh, noes. My notes went away. Um, okay. So we talked about kind of fixed affect. The other thing that we can sort of touch on for a second is flattened affect. So we know that this happens in people with schizophrenia where their affect gets blunted. So the the range of affect, so if I go from this to this, to to this right? There's a wide range, whereas you can have kind of flattened or constricted affect. You'll see this sometimes in late stage Parkinson's as well. Whereas like, they just don't smile much. They don't get very sad. So there's like a, like, there's like a a flattening of the affect. So instead of going like this, what I can do is I'll just do this. Right. And one, one has a, a wider range and is like more comfortable. Like it makes people like, if you laugh kind of fully, right? Like a A full, like a hearty laugh is something that makes people feel comfortable, whereas like if you just kind of like slyly smile all the time, that constriction of affect where you don't display a, a whole lot of positive emotion and you don't display a whole lot of negative emotion, it's not just the fixedness of it, it's the fact that there isn't the range. So both of those things will lead to a sense of creepiness, Okay. So the next next thing that's really really important is the lack of mirroring, and this is what especially causes kids to freak out. Is that generally speaking, when we like interact with another human being, we want to like mirror the affect, and you can sort of feel this yourself, right? So you're ready, like I'm gonna go like this, and as long as I have enough fluctuation and changes, and like you know do like as long as there's movement and fluctuatingness it's going to cause you to respond. But like, think about what you do when I go like this, right? What are you doing? You're smiling and you can't even help it. Like you're just, you're at home. You're like watching. You're like, what is this guy doing? I don't even know. It's not even funny, but what what the hell is happening? I don't know. It doesn't matter. But your, the point is your brain is responding. You can feel yourself respond. And so that emotional mirroring is what comforts people. Because if we were sitting across from each other and I went like this and you started laughing too, then, like, we know we're kind of on the same page, right? And this is where, like, emotional mirroring is very, very important for helping people feel comfortable. It's very important for people feeling understood. So emotional mirroring is a huge component of it. And what I oftentimes find in people who get labeled as creepy is that they're not very good at emotional mirroring. And we'll get to why that is in a second. So, like, this is where, where, like, you know, if someone else is feeling sad and, and you're not, like, able to display sadness then like that's going to cause some problems and they're like okay this person just isn't on the same wavelength with me. And so if you we think about these vague terms like okay this person is just not on the same wavelength like what exactly does that mean? It has to do with things like emotional mirroring. And if you're really on the the not the same wavelength at all, if that gets really really bad, then you end up being perceived as creepy. Because here I am crying about something and this person is like You know, like that's kind of weird. It's kind of creepy. It like doesn't make me feel comfortable. So the next component that we're going to talk about is which is kind of related to that is discongruent affect. So this is another thing that makes people feel creepy, which is that there's a certain display of emotion which is appropriate. And there are other displays of emotion that are not appropriate. So if, for example, you will see this in the Joker as well, where like he has this tick where he starts laughing, right? So And it like creeps people out because you shouldn't be laughing in a situation like this. And so when you display discongruent affect to what you're talking about, we'll also see this as a defense mechanism where sometimes, you know, we'll be talking about really, really sad and terrible things and we'll like start laughing or people will crack a joke or like something will happen and there's like a discongruent affect. The other thing that sometimes that we'll see is that if, you know, if I'm talking about, yeah, I just won the lottery and I'm the happiest person alive. I love life so much. I love people. I'm so happy. I have everything in the world to be thankful for. And I want you to join me in this bliss. Get in my van and I'll drive you to a place that has endless happiness. Get in my van and we'll go to a place. (laughs) I can't do it with a straight face. But you going to see how terrifying that is? It's like, I don't even need to mention the van. You know the van is coming. It's coming, right? You know something, like something is weird here. Like alarm bells. So this is what I want y'all to tune into. If you want to understand creepiness, why the hell is that so damn creepy? If you're watching that and you're like, oh, right? And even now, if I do this, that's going to make you feel more comfortable because that's emotionally mirroring what you were feeling, which is like, get, get away from me. I don't want to get in your van. I don't want to go to your world of bliss or whatever is like, you know, so that's where like emotional, uh, this discongruent affect is very important. So if you're talking about things that are a lot of fun and you don't display a lot of emotion or you're talking about things that are terrible and you're laughing, right? Like, like that's, I'm not going to do that because that will even bother me. I mean, I'm sure theoretically I could, but like, you know, you could talk about something really, really terrible happening and you could be like, smiling while you're talking about it. And then when you combine it all, that's how you get your traditional crazy villain from a movie. So if you go back and you watch movies where there there are villains that are very, very creepy. I'm thinking about like movies like, you know, No Country for Old Men and like some of these other who's that uh there are a couple actors that are really good at this. And if you like really look at what they do, why they're so damn creepy is because they'll have discongruent affect. They'll do brutal things to other people without, you know, like displaying any kind of emotion and that sets us it it like comes across as creepy and so then like like this is where if we think about creepiness it's all about the display of the the emotion and if we think about what's going on on neurological level someone else's brain is factoring in all these things and it's so fast right i can just like go neutral And like, it happens instantly. It's like, what the hell is, what the hell is that? And so when you're thinking about, you know, if someone calls you creepy, it's like the reason they can't tell you what's wrong is because it's that circuit of the brain that's active. Now, I'm not saying that you're behaving the way that I am. I don't think people are, uh, hopefully it's not that bad because I'm really doing gigantic caricatures, but there are features of that that are going to become really important, which we'll kind of get into soon. Okay. Okay. So there's one more thing that makes people hella creepy, which is responding to internal stimuli. So generally speaking, once again, are the empathic circuits of our brain are kind of like attuned to what's going on. And generally speaking, people respond to like certain signals in the environment, right? So if you're like eating dinner and someone gets up and like gets down on one knee and pulls out a ring and is proposing to someone... Everyone in the environment is going to be tuned to that person, right? And then, like, everyone's kind of, like, tuning in to this external stimulus. And we're all sort of responding together. So when, when we sort of all respond, like, when we have this kind of, like, crowd mentality of responding together, we're, like, that's very, like, emotionally comforting. Even if you think about things like peer pressure, right? Let's all get out our pitchforks. We all rile each other up. And then, like, we're all on the same, like, we're, you know stamping our pitchforks and, and we're like, ah, you know, down with whatever, like, so whatever is happening, we're all kind of doing it together. And we have this kind of mob mentality. So if you think about it, the mob mentality, whether it's good or bad or whatever, it's just how human beings work. So when you are not in the same wavelength as other people, when you're not responding to external stimuli and you're instead responding to internal stimuli, that's very creepy. So in the case of something like a psychotic disorder or, you know, substances of abuse where people are like hallucinating and stuff, that creeps people out. Why does it creep people out? Because this person is like responding to stimuli that you can't see. So self dialoguing is a really good example of something that creeps people out. So if someone is has auditory hallucinations and I'm talking to my hallucinations, it creeps people out. We call that self dialoguing where it's like, I'm not even talking, like I'm talking to y'all and there's no one in the room with me. But this is not creepy, right? Because I'm talking to you. Like there's this, it's weird. There's like no other human here, but this somehow is not creepy. Even though I'm talking, like I'm literally talking in an empty room and I keep talking in an empty room, but I'm talking to you and you know that I'm talking to you. So it kind of feels normal. Whereas if I was, you know, if I was like at a food court and y'all were sitting at a table nearby and I was just doing this with no camera or anything like that, if I was just talking, sitting at a picnic table then people would be like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Y'all get that? So, <laughs> this is like, there's no camera. We aren't real. Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys are real copium plenies. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm wrecking myself. But y'all get what I'm saying? Like, seriously, like, I know the memes and stuff aside. Okay, hilarious. No one's real. This is all in Dr. Gay's head. But you get it like, so there's this thing of responding to internal stimuli where like when you're talking in the worst scenarios, this is auditory hallucinations and self dialoguing which is when you're talking to yourself and it creeps people out. So now the question is like, okay, so these are the features of creepiness, right? There's a certain amount. And basically what it comes down to is this weird kind of empathic stuff about facial expressions, the the fluctuating ability of facial expressions, the... Um, you know, the congruence of facial expressions with what's going on around you, like kind of like being on the same wavelength as someone else, emotionally mirroring other people, which when parents, uh, don't do that with their kids, their kids get messed up in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, that's all fixable. Don't worry about it if you wound up in that situation. So don't give up hope, but we sort of know that like the lack of mirroring, like, you know, fixed affects, um, Uh, you know, like the, the, the lack of fluctuation, all this stuff comes across as creepy. Last thing is responding to internal stimuli. There's one other thing that we will talk about towards the end, but, um, oh, should we talk about it now? Okay. You know, we'll talk about the end. Remind me. Okay. So this is why it's so hard to deal with because first of all, we don't really know what we're doing, right? You're not really paying attention to like, okay, how much am I fluctuating my face in a, in a 30 second period? Is my face fluctuating a lot or is it fluctuating a little? And even then, like you guys may have noticed like this is a little bit creepy. It's not as fun as when I was doing it earlier. And why is that? It's because there's a certain range of affect. And since I'm exaggerating a bit too much, it like feels a little bit creepy, right? And even when I do this, maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable because like now I'm mirroring what you're feeling, okay? So this is this is what's going on. It's all this subconscious stuff. And this is what's so frustrating about it, is you don't know what you're doing, like Am I smiling too much? Am I smiling for too long? Am I smiling when I shouldn't be smiling? These are all the different features of affect which make other people feel creeped out if we don't do it kind of properly, okay? And so then the question is, okay, what do we do about it? So the first thing to understand is that if you try too hard, all of this stuff is going to happen. So that's where people will say, if you're going on a date, just relax, right? Like, don't worry about it. Get out of your head. And why is that really important? Like, sure, that's good to do, but let's understand what does that have to do with creepiness? If I'm in my own head and I'm overanalyzing, okay, like, should I have, how often should I change the fluctuation of my smile? Should I go 20% smile? Should I go 30% smile? Should I go 40% smile? I've been at 40% smile for way too long. Let me go back down to 20%. If that's literally what's going on in your head, how empathically connected do you think you are to the other person? Like, not at all, right? Right. And so this is what we tend to find in in people who get called creepy is a lot of them will have problems like social anxiety. And what does that literally mean? How does that work? What that means is that when you sit with someone, you're not actually attending to them. You're in your own head and you're thinking through a bunch of things. They're telling a funny story and then you're like, you're like busy, like thinking about what you just said and like how you don't want to stumble over your words. And so you're not paying attention to the story. And then they kind of like look at you because they're like, they just you know, got to the punchline of the story and you're supposed to laugh and then you didn't realize it and then like some some part of your brain is like, oh, there's the punchline, laugh. And then you're like, ha, 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 that's so funny. And then the other person is like, the the fuck was that, right? And so then you become like, if you try, if you're socially anxious, instead of interacting with someone, you, you become like an alien or a reptile in a human's body trying to interact with them the right way. And you get so caught up in your head that you start forcing, okay, this is what I'm supposed to smile. Like I'm supposed to smile when I first meet someone. So you meet someone at the very beginning. You're like, smile, execute smile.exe. Hello. I'm so happy to be here right now. It's nice to meet you. And then the other person's like, what the, right? And they think you're a little bit creepy. So in terms of responding to internal stimuli, I don't think most of us are are psychotic. But even if we come across as creepy, the reason for that is because we're literally stuck in our own head. And so the facial expressions that we're displaying are going to be based on this, right? So even if like you're on a date and the other person is having a good time, if you think you screwed up and you should have ordered something else or you should have let them order first Or you interrupted them and then you're in your own head. Suddenly you're responding to internal stimuli and they're like enjoying the atmosphere and some live music just came on, something like that. And they're like, so they turn to it, but you're thinking about what you just said. And you're like, and then you're not attending to the external world. You're responding to internal stimuli. It comes across as creepy, right? So the second thing about affect. So this is where oftentimes people who are creepy will get stuck in some kind of negative affect or they'll get, they'll try too hard and get stuck in like some kind of positive affect where you're trying too hard to have a good time. And even when I say the phrase trying too hard, it's like, what is that? How do you define that? But y'all kind of know, right? Like, you know when someone is trying too hard. And what does that mean, trying too hard? How do you know when someone's trying too hard? It's because they tend to exaggerate affect that becomes kind of non-genuine, and they'll like amplify it artificially. So you're not feeling it internally. So what you do is like you ramp everything up, but then it, it's not congruent it doesn't mirror what the other person is feeling. Oh, oh my God, that's, that's so hilarious. Oh my God, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And you are the funniest person ever. And I'm having such a good time at this date. And I would love to do it again. Right, so there's like, that's a little bit creepy. Like not quite as bad maybe, but y'all see that? It's sort of like this amplified affect. And why do you amplify affect? Because you yourself don't feel comfortable. So then we have this kind of phrase of like, fake it till you make it, which I think is a terrible idea. Okay? So if you are struggling with being creepy, recognize that a lot of this stuff is actually changeable. Like you can act on it. Okay? You can, there are things that you can do. So there, here are a couple of tips. So remember, the goal here is to be relaxed. The goal here is to have a fluid and mirroring affect that is, generally speaking, full range, right? So we want it to be fluid, fluctuating, right? So we're gonna, sometimes we're gonna have fun, and sometimes we're gonna be like, oh my God, so serious. Oh, so serious. And then it's like, oh wow, that's crazy, right? So we want a range of affect. We wanna be able to pace the other person. And uh, range, pace, fluctuating, full range, and mirroring, right, so we wanna pace the other person, we want to go high when they go high. We want to go low when they go low. And we want, you know, to be able to move. So we don't want to just stay in one place for a long period of time, okay? So then the question is, okay, like, how do I do that? Because if I'm trying too hard, if, if, if in my mind, it's like the other person is smiling. I should smile. The other person is stop smiling. Stop smiling. Terminate smile.exe. Execute smile.exe. Execute smile.exe at 50%. If you go down that route... You're going to be responding to internal stimuli, and you're not going to actually be attending to them. You're going to feel like some kind of reptile in a human's body, and they're going to creep them out. So what do you do? Couple of things. One is think of a positive memory. So if you want to force yourself to smile, and you want it to be an authentic smile, so there are two kinds of smiles. There's this kind of smile. which is creepy, right? Because the smile doesn't reach my eyes is what people say. And then there's like this kind of smile, which is like a little bit better, right? It's it's a little bit better. So there's kind of a full face smile and the way that you do those two things, if I tell myself to smile, what you're actually going to do is you're going to just do this, which is kind of creepy, right? doesn't touch your eyes. Whereas if I think about like, you know, how much my kids love Pokemon, it's going to make me feel like more emotionally connected and I'm going to smile more naturally. So one thing you can do is just think of a positive memory. Like, I know it sounds kind of weird. You don't want to do it too long. Otherwise, you're going to slip into the responding internal stimuli thing. But as you're, let's say you're about to meet the person and you kind of like walk up to the restaurant, you see someone waiting outside. And as you're walking up, like, just think about like, man, that, you know, it's uh, Overwatch 2's player base has dropped by 99%. God, that's got to suck for the Overwatch devs, right? And you're just thinking about that. And as you walk up, you're going to have some kind of active fluctuation, of, of, and generally speaking, lulls, right? <laughs> right? So you just, right. So it's, it's gotta be hard for them, but you're like, wow, that's a mess. Like NFTs, lull, right? So whatever it is, just think about something and it can be nice and short and it's gonna like create sort of a natural smile on your face because you're thinking about it. And then what's gonna happen is you're gonna be thinking, right? As you walk up and you see them, and you're gonna be like, hey, how are you? And then you're, that's gonna change. The affect is gonna change. You're gonna introduce yourself, smile right? And that's where, hey, my name is Olive. Nice to meet you. And they're going to see all of that. And even in the five seconds of you thinking about something and attending to them, introducing yourself and smiling, there's going to be some leftover like sort of fluidness from your memory, which is going to like, and uh, you're, you've won at that point. And the first five seconds, if you've like made a decent introduction, like you've won. On the flip side, for those of you all that are paranoid, if I screw up the first five seconds, does it mean that I'm screwed for the rest of the day? No, not at all right? But that's kind of a key tip to evoke some kind of internal emotion. Don't dwell in the memory. Don't get lost in the memory, but just kind of evoke that emotion. Let it sort of relax you a little bit. Think a little bit positively and then go into the interaction. The next thing that you really need to do is try to be with them, okay? And this may sound, I mean, it's simpler to say than it is to do, but recognize that you're not there. So the people who get caught up in their own head, right? What they're trying to do is they're trying to do well on a date, So there's like a certain outcome, like I want to be liked. And if you're chasing that outcome, you're not going to be enjoying the date. I want to be liked. 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 Then you're not actually like enjoying the other person's company. You're just trying to get them to like you, which by the way is creepy. We'll get to that in a second. So this is where what I'd really encourage you all to do is just recognize that this is an opportunity for you to get to know someone and see if this person is worth liking Right? So, like this is an, another human being that has a whole set of experiences that could be good, bad, interesting. They could recommend books to you that you'll really enjoy. They may play games that you really enjoy. They may recommend movies. They may recommend music. You can learn about the world through this person's experience. And if you go on a date, I try to attend to them, right? It's not just necessarily in being polite and trying to be like the nicest guy on the planet. Like, I'm gonna be such a nice guy, like I'm gonna make sure that they're they have the best and happiest time ever. That's bad, too, because then you're sort of forcing a particular kind of interaction where someone is like, oh, yeah, you know, the, the food isn't uh, my 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 chicken could use some salt. And then it's like, OK, like, do you want me to get a waiter for you? Like, n- no, 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 Let me get some. And then you're like, I want you to have the best experience possible because you're amazing and you deserve the best. Like, how do you know that you just met the person? You don't know what they deserve. They may not deserve the best. They may be awful people. And so instead of trying to you know, shoot for a particular thing or display yourself in a particular way. Just genuinely attend to the person, right? This is an opportunity. You have an hour, you have two hours to get to know someone and you get to learn about the world. And the the more you have that attitude instead of chasing a particular outcome, either honoring them with your presence or trying to get them to like you, like all of those things are outcome oriented and you're not going to kind of enjoy yourself. And you're kind of trying too hard. As you try too hard, all that stuff we talked about, about affect is going to start to come into play. And then you won't be able to like attend to what they're saying. You're not going to be emotionally mirroring because they're actually okay with the chicken. It's a little bit, could use a little bit of salt. But then when you call the waiter over and you're like, we need a new chicken. This is terrible. I don't know how you could serve this stuff. Discongruent affect. Because the person's fine with it. They're like, whatever. I can survive without, you know, without perfectly salted chicken. And so this is a lot of stuff that people do that they don't realize that they're doing, but it essentially boils down to these things, okay? So the last thing that we're going to talk about, and this is very important for creepiness, so this is one thing that you really have to be careful about. So the other thing that makes people creepy is not respecting boundaries, okay? So you can do all the affect stuff, but then the other thing you need to be really careful about is if you are not respecting people's boundaries, they will think you are creepy and you should not do that. So good examples of not respecting boundaries are, you know, like repeated hammering text messages, expecting responses in a brief period of time. Like if you feel like, how can I say this? This is difficult, but sometimes people who don't respect boundaries have emotional needs that can only be met by the other person. So that you have to be very, very careful about. If you are in a situation where your emotional needs and comfort depend upon this person, you can come across as creepy. So I'll give you all a couple of examples. So if I felt like I did poorly on the first date and I message you and I'm like, hey, sorry for screwing up on the first date. And they had kind of a good time. They're like, oh no, it was totally fine. But their response doesn't soothe me because I don't, I think they're just being nice. Right? So I feel like I screwed up. They're just being nice. And then I hammer at them again. Because what I really need from them is for them to tell me, yeah, you did screw up, but it's okay. Like, let's go out again. I'll give you another chance. I'm looking for some kind of emotional, like, resolution from them. Whereas th- they're not kind of on the same page, but I'm kind of relying on them for emotional needs. Other examples, so this can also be sort of like what crosses into the clingy territory, All right? We go on two dates. Why aren't you messaging me back? Like, what's going on there? Because like, you feel lonely. You feel like, so, like, look into yourself. Why do you need this person to message you back after two dates, right? And then you get angry and then you start, you know, calling them bitches or assholes or whatever. But like, think about your own emotional needs and how much you were relying on this other person to soothe your emotional needs. And oftentimes people who are creepy don't really think about it that way. They don't think about what they're not even aware of like what kind of needs they're pursuing. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, so loneliness is absolutely, as, as Rubric Krube says, loneliness is sad and can turn us ugly. Absolutely, and the problem is when you, when it turns you sad, and then you depend upon that other person to resolve your sadness. And by resolve, I don't necessarily mean make you feel happy. Sometimes what people are looking for is like, essentially abuse. Right? They're like, you, you why aren't you texting me back after two two dates? Either call me an asshole and just be playing with it, or you know, give me another chance. Like, don't stop leading me on. So, we're looking for some kind of resolution. So, be very careful about your own emotional needs and how much responsibility for soothing those things or addressing those things you put on the other person. That's going to lead to boundary problems. And the last thing is explicit boundaries. So, like, there's a certain, you know, standard of, like, what you're allowed to do in terms of physical contact, right? So, if you're on a first date with someone, like, don't, you know, put your arm around them, like, in the first five seconds, like, right. Don't put your armor on their waist. You know, don't try to hold their hand like right away. Right. There's a certain kind of like boundary, which is kind of like evolves over time. And you have to kind of give it that time. So there's also boundaries, which I don't really understand too well about, you know, what's the frequency of text messages and things like that. You know, calling people drunk is another example. Like, you know, you got to be careful about that sort of thing. Um, you know, there are all kinds of emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, you know, like, I don't even know, like, interaction boundaries, for lack of a better term. And if you violate those kinds of boundaries and don't really respect them from another person, like, that's going to make you come across as creepy. So those are explicit behaviors that have nothing to do with what's going on over here. It's all about how you treat and behave with another person. So just to kind of summarize, the challenge with being called creepy Or telling someone that they're creepy is that that's not, we don't really know what that means, right? So people will label you with it. And that's really challenging because, like, you don't know what you're doing wrong. If someone calls you creepy, like, what do you do about that? How do you get uncreepy? Well, the truth of the matter is that you, you can't actually do something about it. And that's in order to understand what to do about it, we have to understand what creepiness actually is. And it turns out there's very, very sophisticated and nuanced circuitry within our brains. That tells us when something is comfortable and safe and when something is creepy and dangerous. And a lot of that circuitry has to do with things like affect. Affect is the display of emotion. And what we tend to find is that safe affect is affect that is fluctuant, full range, and appropriate and mirroring. So it's like, you know, there's there's a full range of affect. It changes a lot. It is tuned into what's going on. And it matches what the other person is doing. So as long as you kind of like work on your affect in that way, like you'll come across as less creepy. Oftentimes you'll find things like movies and and video games and stuff like that will tap into these features when they try to create someone who's creepy or scary or a villain. And people will say, oh my God, this person is such a good actor. And sure, they're good actors. But what are they actually doing? If you analyze what is it that they're doing that makes them creepy, it's what they do with their affect. Right. So this is why you'll sometimes even have like Breaking Bad, I think is a good example of this, where you'll have like protagonists who are villains, but they're likable. And what makes them likable? Like you can have like people who do bad things that are likable. What makes them likable? It's that affective, uh, you know, fluctuation that makes them not creepy. Like you like them. Right. And it's kind of interesting if you kind of like watch movies and stuff, look for these features and you'll begin to see, okay, who's creepy and who isn't creepy. A couple of other things to remember about being creepy. First is that responding to internal stimuli tends to freak people out. So this, in the worst case scenarios, we see this with things like psychotic disorders, with auditory hallucinations, and self-dialoguing, which means talking to yourself, which is really, really creepy. But unfortunately, if we have anxiety, if we're overthinking things in our head, we're going to get some of that same effect, right? Because I'm all up here, and I'm not attending to what's going on around me. I'm not paying attention to the conversation. I'm not emotionally mirroring. And the last thing is boundaries. So you got to respect people's boundaries. So whether those are emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, you know, interaction boundaries, frequency of communication, when you expect people to get back to you. you know, we're not saying that, that people, the other party isn't at fault in some way here, which we'll talk about as, as one final point. But generally speaking, you know, there's like don't text someone 15 times after a first date within like 15 minutes, right? Give them a chance to respond. The last thing to remember and this is unfortunate, but sometimes people will call you creepy just because they feel uncomfortable. And it may not be that you're doing anything wrong. So some people who have a low discomfort tolerance, right? So people who get triggered easily, for example, or people who don't know how to you know, communicate effectively, sometimes people get called creepy and they actually aren't doing anything wrong. And that's just coming from sort of the insecurity or discomfort of the person that you're with. And that has really nothing to do with you. And that's what makes it so difficult to, to sort of deal with is because like sometimes people are, you know, you're not really doing anything wrong. It's just people will call you creepy. Because I think the other thing that people have learned over time is that creepiness is sort of like an impervious attack. Like if you call someone creepy, like they don't get a discourse about that. Right. And if they push you about it, what makes me creepy? What makes me creepy? Then that just reinforces the fact that they're creepy. So in a sense, it's almost like a a Trump card in some relationships or especially in terminating relationships or setting boundaries where if you call someone creepy, like they don't have any kind of recourse against that. And it's a very, very safe way where you can tell people, oh, yeah, why didn't I? Why didn't I? I I block that person. Why? He's a creep or she's a creep. She creeps me out. And as a society, what we've sort of done is we've said, like, if something creeps you out, you're allowed to just say that and then there, nothing else needs to be done. So you have to be a little bit caref- careful about being, you know, if you receive the feedback that you're creepy, I would be very, very critical of yourself and really do like a, a process of understanding. Am I in my own head? Am I really attending to the other person? Am I sitting with them? Am I like really trying to learn about them and their lives and things like that? Am I sharing a piece of who I am? because sometimes what'll happen is people will just feel creeped out but that really has nothing to do with you that has to do with their own some scars their own you know cognitive schemas their own triggers and things like that which is like you can't really do anything about that right so be a little bit careful about that so that's what creepiness is turns out that I think there's a lot of good neuroscientific basis for these kinds of things this is really like wired into our core neuro like neurocircuitry the challenge is that we don't really understand that so when we get this kind of feedback, we don't really know what to do with it because no one explains, okay, what is creepiness? How can we understand this? The good news is that through things like film and television and other kinds of research on on concepts like the uncanny valley, we can actually break apart what creepiness is and if you get that kind of feedback, what you can do about it. Make sense? Good. Questions? Yeah, so your turn, my turn is saying if it's many people who are always telling you you're creepy rather than just one person, then that can help. Very good point, right? So how do you know if the creepiness is on your end or if it's the other person's like discomfort? That depends on the the consistency of the feedback. What if a narcissist doesn't give a F about the fact that they're creepy? So if people don't care that they're creepy or they don't care about your opinion, like, that's fine. So the interesting thing is that narcissism and creepy, I think, are not necessarily correlated at all. So we tend to toss around the term narcissism a lot. But generally speaking, if you look at people who are narcissistic, they're very emotionally attuned, which is how they get away with what they get away with. Right. They're so good at mirroring emotion. They're so good at provoking emotion and manipulating emotion they're actually very, very adept. I almost think, I mean, it's not really true, but you get a narcissist who are absolutely creepy. But sometimes people with narcissism or especially like cluster B personality disorders, their emotional empathy is like through the roof. Like they're very, very like, their emotional circuitry in some ways is very, very competent. I don't know if that makes sense. Um So Acid Army Gaming is how can you tell what other person considers too much texting? There should be like a safe number in a certain amount of time, right? Yeah, I don't really know. What do y'all think? Like what's what's the acceptable... Because I, I don't, you know, I don't like meet people on dating apps and stuff. So I, I don't know what the acceptable number is. I don't know what the frequency of da- uh, of texting, you know. Uh, yeah, so, J- so JK Ray is saying, ask them about that. I think that that's... Uh, excellent point. The one thing that you've got to be kind of careful about is that asking too many things about boundaries and stuff early on can be creepy, right? So if we go on one date and I'm like, okay, tell me what makes you comfortable in terms of frequency of texting and stuff like that. Tell me what makes you comfortable with this, with that. Generally speaking, I'm a big fan of asking, just asking people, um, Yeah, so McThug Fresh is saying just got to match their behavior. Realize when you're striking out. I think some of it's like kind of organic. Asking him about it, I think, is a very good idea just to give um, you all a sense of how to do that, right? So in in kind of a safe way, you know, if it's been a day or like, let's say you send a text and they don't respond, I would say kind of like think about it like tennis where you send something and then they send something back. Although I wouldn't adhere to that rule too carefully. This is where, you know, the second day or third day, if you text them again, um, it's really tricky because you don't want to say, am I bothering you by texting you too much? Because that comes across as kind of like insecure and stuff like that. Um, You know, you just, you also want to kind of acknowledge, okay, acceptable number of texts per day after the first date. So people are saying like one to five. I would have put a lot of difference between one and five even there, but you know, you can text them, I'd say, like once or twice. And then if a couple of days go by, I'd say you can text them again. And then like maybe with that second text or with the third time you text them, maybe not the third actual text, but, you know, the third time you text them, I would sort of check about their frequency of texting. Yo, so texted you a couple of times. I don't know if you're busy or whatever. Like, that's cool. Just curious. I mean, do you want me to con- like, should I try again or are you just busy or like what's going on? cool either way. I know people get busy. I'm, I'm, like, you know, I, I'm happy to hit you up next week if things are busy for you right now. And then if you don't get an answer to that, then I would let it go. Right? So you can sort of let people know. So this is where, um, just to give you all an example, so sometimes I'll have patients who are late to appointments and generally speaking, when I have appointments, it's like, you know, I have a 10 a.m. appointment. I have a 11 a.m. appointment. If 10 a.m. shows up at 1015, I'm not going to go late into my 11 a.m. appointment who's on time. So if they, they show up late, you know, we get less time. So if that happens a couple times. I'll talk to them about it. I'll just be like, so help me understand. So I've noticed you've been late two or three times. Like, what, like, what should we do about that? Because, you know, I, I think we're doing a lot of good work. Um, I'd love to be able to work with you for the full hour. So is this the kind of thing? Like, should I just mentally schedule like, you know, 15? Should I assume that you're going to be 15 minutes late to every appointment? Because I can schedule that accordingly. Or, you know, are you going to show up on time or like, you know, so sometimes what I would do is have patients who are sort of like late off and on. I'd schedule them at 11 o'clock and then I'd have lunch from 12 to 1 and I'd sort of mentally account for, okay, the chances are they're going to be 15 minutes late. And then I can run into my lunchtime a little bit and get a little bit of work done at 11. So I can sort of mentally prepare for it. But you just have a conversation about it, right? What should I expect from you? And that's where, th- th- that's a really good non-judgmental way to do it, right? So you're not saying, I want you to do this. You need to text me back. Because if you do that, that's going to be creepy. But asking people, like, what are the expectations here? Like, just... Tell me what the rules of the game are. I'm not saying that they need to be a particular way. I'm not asking you to change them. I'm just trying to figure out what are the rules of the game. Rigolchi is saying, also try to let them initiate text conversation once in a while. That that way you know if they are interested. Yeah. How could someone work on incongruent affect? That's a really good question. Uh, Arifond123. So the first thing to understand about incongruent affect is that some of it is like a healthy normal adaptation. So even if you y'all watch the you know the interview with Iron Mouse, I think that's a good example of of sort of like incongruent affect which we see a lot. It's very normal for people to laugh when they're talking about like terrible things happening to them, right? Cuz that's it's a defense mechanism, it's humor. So sometimes incongruent affect is just a consequence of a defense mechanism. Um and so if that's the case, then like you just need to be aware of that. Right. And then like sort of ask yourself, why can't I sit with this emotion the way that it is? Like what makes it really uncomfortable for me to you know, sit with this? So also joking, uh, sometimes with my male patients, we would sometimes talk about, you know, when we when we have some heavy emotional experience, one of us would crack a joke and sometimes they would be dick jokes. And so instead of actually making the dick joke, what we learned to do is, is say like, okay, now feels like one of those moments where, you know, a dick joke would really cut the tension. And then we'd kind of laugh about that. And then we wouldn't need to make the joke anymore because we're acknowledging a little bit and then we're going to stay in that kind of negative space. Does that make sense? Okay. Um. Um. <laughs> okay yeah I guess as to be expected people did not ever did not really <laughs> okay let's move on <laughs> Dr. Case, yeah. uh, are you mocking Dr. K is speechless good job y'all yeah absolutely I was trying to decide. So this is one of those things where like, so, you know, sometimes I'll like look at chat and it's like, okay, should I address this or should I not address this? And this is one of those things where it's like, sometimes, you know, like if you're playing a game of chess and you lose a piece, you just got to understand that if you try to keep fighting that battle, you're just going to lose more and more pieces, right? It's like, sometimes you just got to take the L and move on. Because that's not a battle I'm gonna win. And then I was debating, okay, like, what are the odds of, like, actually, you know, but I, I think the truth of the matter is, I think y'all know, you know, I think the community's actually, how, how can I say this? Y'all pretend to be far bigger degenerates than you actually are. It's almost like instinct or reflex at this point. It's not instinct, it's reflex, right? It's conditioning. It's like, oh, Dr. K said dick joke must respond with emote. And y'all know what I mean. I think you understood what I was trying to say. And then if y'all want to, you know, that's okay. Like, that's just how it works. Okay? So it's fine. Right? That's our dick joke. Y'all get that? It's like, when I say something, it's like, that's the way that you manage the tension. Someone makes a great comment. "Cut, Cut the tension like a circumcision. Like, that's hilarious. Right? but that's that's just our dynamic. So this is where when we're talking about mirroring affect and stuff like that, right? So if doc, regardless of the the context, if Dr. K uses the word dick, like we have to respond in a particular way. And that's that's our social contract. Which is fine. So I was just like working through that in my head a little bit. But do we want to do we want to you know <laughs> <sighs> Right. You can't uh, say can't argue with the contract. You're right. You can't. And even then, I tried to go meta with the contract and you all handled it for a little bit. And then now it's like, nope, back to it.